Listen well to this story I tell, for some is fact and some is fiction, but all of it is true. I'm Bradley Rolfe, and I'm reading my blog. real brief intro. Uh, Last episode was kind of the first in a season of experimenting with reflective essays dressed up as theater reviews. And I continue here the next few posts with some theater reviews. And eventually this would lead to a short stint of me actually writing reviews for a small online local publication. But here we go. Originally posted March 15th, 2018. The Last Romance, a play that made me think. The Last Romance at Insight Theater, March 2nd through 18th, 2018. The Last Romance by Joe DiPietro should be about finding love late in life, living while you can, and not letting the past hold you back from living in the moment. At least that's what it looks like it sets out to be, and that would make the most sense for a popular play by a commercially successful comedic playwright. But in fact, the play's dominant theme is the state of marriage in our culture, and the relationship between marriage and the state. The play as I saw it. Ralph, an Italian-American New Yorker and senior widower who lives with his only surviving sister, Rose, is mired in routine. One day, he decides to detour from his typical walking route and ends up in a dog park. He proceeds to hit on Carol, an age-appropriate dog owner who initially spurns his advances. In spite of her resistance, a conversation is had and a relationship no doubt sparked. Both Carol and Ralph's sister are irritable worriers, Rose because all she has ever known is caring for the men in her life who subsequently abandon her, save for her brother, and Carol because she lost her husband to a stroke. Over the course of several days or weeks of conversation about life and opera and a lost and soon thereafter found dog, Ralph and Carol are solidified as 100% certified in love. Carol buys tickets to an opera in Italy, and Ralph decides he will propose to her in Europe. Rose, however, warns Ralph that he is being overhasty, and she knows what kind of a woman Carol is because she's been gossiping with someone else who lives in Carol's building. Rose says if Ralph is going to propose, he ought to at least do it before boarding the plane. Ralph heeds his sister's advice, and Carol confesses that she can't marry you, Ralph, because my husband, who had a stroke four years ago, well, actually, he's in a coma, but I never said he was dead, even though I strongly implied it and allowed myself to become emotionally involved with you. Well, Ralph takes it all in stride and virtuously walks away from the whole situation. Also, at some point, it is revealed that Rose's husband ran off with his girlfriend 22 years ago, but she never gave him a divorce because she's a good Catholic, and apparently shutting someone out from your life and not reading or responding to their letters counts as honoring the sanctity of your vows. 
Anyway, said girlfriend is now dying or whatever, and her last request is to finally marry Tony, Rose's husband, because 22 years of a committed relationship isn't good enough without finding a way to reach your stubborn, estranged wife and convince her to finally give you that legal divorce. I didn't start out trying to be reductive, but that was the only way I could summarize the plot without giving the script more credit than it deserves. And yes, the script needs work. Much of the dialogue is commendable, but structurally the text is lacking. Much like DiPietro's contribution to the Elvis Presley jukebox musical All Shook Up, I came out of the show frustrated and disappointed, not because it was abjectly bad, but because it has so much potential to be good, but kept missing and missing. I'm not going to do a full autopsy and point out where everything breaks down and how it could be fixed, because I don't care enough to give that away for free. If Mr. DiPietro wants that information, I will gladly charge my consulting fee and workshop it with his team. Besides, I much prefer to share what seeing this play made me think. For all its flaws, I walked out of the theater pondering. Considering. And that has more to do with my approach to viewing art than it does the piece itself. Welcome, class, to Art Appreciation 101. At a recent staged reading of a new play, one of my fellow audience members commented that the play was, quote, thought-provoking. And really, shouldn't all theater be thought-provoking? Sure, there's entertainment value, the aesthetic criticism of art, but if you view that as the prime purpose of art, I would propose plainly that your perspective is incorrect. And I can make that claim with authority, because only a dozen years ago, I would have argued for that belief. But back then, I held fast to more than one wrong idea, and I'm proud to say that today, I am completely rehabilitated. No, the aesthetic of art is only one of its components that captures our attention. Art can be beautiful and awe-inspiring. It can be shocking and confounding. But the truest value of art is how it connects us as people. For instance, Egyptian art, Renaissance works, Greek classics, the writings of Shakespeare. Yes, these are valuable for their mastery, but they are much more valuable for the simple fact that they have endured. They connect us to our past, our common ancestry and humanity. I don't have comprehensive knowledge here. I will admit that my experience is shaped by a Western-centric historical education. I often zoom through or completely ignore the African, Asian, and Native American antiquities in favor of exhibits I already understand or have existing context in which to place them. But I think we have a tendency to forget that people are people. We are all susceptible to tribalism, not only in our immediate communities or shared ideologies or national identities, but even chronocentrically. We categorize ancient cultures as, well, ancient, old, dead, irrelevant. We look at the progress of technology and say, truly, we must be more human than they were hundreds of years ago. Maybe not deliberately, but it's in the subtext. And that is why a contextual eye is important when interpreting art, so we can understand the human who created it, 
And that is why an active mind is critical to experiencing art, because messaging, whether it is overt or unintentional, is the defining factor of the artist-audience relationship. All that to say, next time you see a play or a sculpture or a movie or any other created media, and you find yourself seeing the flaws, look for the nuggets. Look for something you can connect to. Allow it to affect your thought process. Find the humanity. Here's what I walked away from the last romance with. Why are the two female characters a nagging type and a nervous cagey type? And why is the main character so effortlessly suave in that from a bygone era sense? Yes, the play was written 10 years ago, and yes, these characters would have been coming of age in the 1930s and 40s, but it is impossible for me not to view these characters with the lens of the moment we are currently in. The relationships between these characters are defined by mid-century American patriarchy, even in the setting of 2008. They are stuck in time, and there is little redeeming or charming about their interactions. A play doesn't have to fix or criticize or apologize for the way its characters relate to each other, but in the context of a romantic story, it is expected, and this play does not deliver. Marriage is the central conflict in this play. The morality of honoring a state-sanctioned marriage is the only thing holding Ralph back from continuing to pursue his romance with Carol. Up until that revelation, they were essentially having an affair. While the law may be a hurdle to traditional marriage, at their age, and with the persistent vegetative state of Carol's legal husband, why can't they have a weird, ethical affair? Definitely odd and uncomfortable, especially if it was my grandpa, but still, given the circumstances, why not? And then there's Rose's husband's girlfriend. After two decades of a physically separated marriage adjacent to a live-in affair, what's the big deal with the divorce? If not for the legal standing, Rose's husband is de facto divorced and remarried. Remove the marriage remove the conflict. Near the end, Ralph says, We all lie so we don't end up alone. Delivered with a matter-of-fact, that's the way the cookie crumbles, resignation. Is he writing off Carol's deception? Is he sharing his general worldview? Whatever it is, it doesn't feel like an indictment of the notion. And if it isn't, it paints Ralph as bitter, which is an odd conclusion to a light romantic romp where an octogenarian rediscovers his joie de vie. If you came here for a review, here it is. Joniel Joplin's performance was a joy to experience. This is the first time I've seen him on stage, but I must agree with the hype he is skillful and a treasure. Clark Sturdivant's voice is simply lovely and a fit to the Italian opera selections that accompany the play. 
from the rest of the cast and the production design as a whole, I got the feeling this was one of those if-only-we-had-another-week situations. Plus, there were some design elements that telegraphed plot points before they were revealed, and if that was a choice, I disagree with it. On an unrelated note, I rewatched the movie Network for the first time in a couple years, and I had a lot of thoughts. Expect a multi-part essay. What to see next. World premiere of Forgotonia, Purple Heart City at Tesseract Theater, Anything Goes at New Lion Theater, Jesus Christ Superstar at Stray Dog Theater. The lies you tell, the lies you tell, yourself and others, mostly yourself. That's, you know, I have heard, and I usually live by this, I usually, the advice about goals, especially, I feel it's generally, I've, I've generally taken it from a creative, productive standpoint, but I've heard it said, you know, some behavioral scientists basically found that if you tell somebody what your goal is, you're less likely to reach that goal. No multi-part essay about the movie Network exists written by me. Um, and, and so, but, so that, that, that shows, that's an example of, of the opposite there. You know, I, I made the goal and I said the goal out loud and therefore I didn't achieve it. I, the, the science behind it, as I understand it, is the, you get the same type of dopamine release or the same type of, you know, good vibes from telling someone, hey, I'm going to do this. Your brain feels that the same way as completing something. Uh, so when you, so then, you know, you say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to build a, a shed to keep all my garden tools in. And you go tell them, like, guys, I'm going to build a shed to build all my, put all my garden tools in. And they say, great, that's awesome gonna be so happy when you have that shed for your garden tools and you say yeah i am and you feel good about it and then your brain says ah yes i feel good about that thing and then you don't have the motivation of feeling that later to complete the goal and you say and it just falls by the wayside you know granted there's i'm sure there's more to it than that but that's you know that's how i understand it and it makes sense and i i i've seen that and i i have tended to follow that advice when I have an idea for something I want to do I will practice I will I will exercise secrecy around it because I believe the idea that if I tell people that I'm going to do it that I'm not going to do it and the great thing too is if you if you don't tell people that you're going to do it and then you also don't do it well nobody knows but you I was once again surprised. It's weird because, like, I mean, one, being in the middle of 2020, everything feels like it's 10 years ago. And this is two and a half years ago that I wrote this. And, you know, it, it feels so far away, but so near. Yeah, it's just, once again, it goes back to the thesis of, I don't know how much I can really articulate it here, but keep a journal, write things every once in a while and come back to them later, you'll like it. 
or you won't, whatever. I was surprised to find, because once again, going back, it's not so far ago that I look back and say, oh, I, I recall these things that I wrote uh, and, and roughly what they were about. I vaguely remember the Silent Sky one, the previous episode, being deeper, um, whereas this one, I feel like, goes deeper than I remembered it going. One thing I am consciously trying to get away from nowadays is reductivism. There's an author and YouTuber named Lindsay Ellis who most of her videos are video essays about films. And she talks about, in, in criticism in general, but particularly within the world of YouTube video essays, the idea of producing a thing bad essay. Uh, just saying, like, here is here is a product, and it's bad. Let me tell you why it's bad. Uh, and that's so prevalent on YouTube because that type of content gets gets clicks as opposed to saying thing good. You know, if you say, here's this very popular piece of culture and media, and let me tell you all the reasons why it's really good. That's kind of boring because most people can kind of assume why it's good, and that analysis at least imagined before watching it, you imagine like, well, how interesting could that analysis be? There's no conflict. Ah, ah, no conflict. One, bringing it back to the piece here, conflict is a driver of narrative. Uh, and at least, you know, the, the narratives we're accustomed to were accustomed to conflict-driven narrative. There are traditions of narrative that don't have conflict at the core of it or, or structure it in a different way, but especially in Western culture, we are so accustomed to conflict-driven narrative. And that's why Thing Bad essays perform better on YouTube and Thing Good ones don't. And I give the playwright a lot of guff and, and maybe the production didn't showcase how great this script on paper could be. But I feel like watching it, I didn't get out of the script what I wanted from it. Once again, what I wanted from it there's there's not necessarily uh, an objective measure here. Well, there's never an objective measure of how good a piece of art is. That's why we have many different theories of criticism. We've got all these different measuring sticks because this is the measuring stick I like, and I hope that you also like it. But it's also, it's interesting, and as a writer, I think about this, and I worry about this, and I try to, I'm not, I typically don't write for a specific period. Most of the stuff I write is vague, generic, present day, and I have noticed that I somewhat intentionally keep my settings vague, and try to to keep them untethered from a specific year because I worry that a connection to a specific year in a non-period piece is going to make that media I've created have less longevity. Technology changes so quickly, especially now, that setting anything in the present day can easily become 
dated. And I mean, in light of that, is it possible? One, is it possible now to write something set in the present day and have it continue to feel relevant as present day and not treat it as a period piece 5, 10, 20 years in the future? Slash, has that ever been possible? I, I, I don't know, because like I, I feel like if I watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off is set in the present day in the 80s, and it doesn't reference too many 80s culturally specific things. There's obviously there's you know the computers and and the things they use you know have a cap to them, but the story still feels immediate. And maybe that's because the story is tapping into these broader human connection themes, right? And so I think that's where the last romance fell short for me is because, like I said, on the surface, it looks like it should be a, ah, someone who's older can have a romantic comedy situation. And it's, that works, you know, that makes sense. But the conflicts within it were so tied to these specific cultural norms, these specific cultural prejudices about the institution of marriage. And I don't know if it's just because I was being reductive or because, you know, the writer and the audience, me, are so far removed in what is culturally acceptable or myself and the characters are so far removed in what is culturally acceptable or culturally bendable, at least, that I couldn't relate to any of the conflict within. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't feel the conflict because I didn't relate to it, because the hardline perspectives held by the characters, to my eye, were malleable. Reading My Blog is a production of me, Bradley Rawl. I'm on Instagram and Twitter under my real name. Tweet at me about a piece of art that you didn't like, but still somehow connected to. If you want to skip ahead, links to my blog and other projects I'm working on can be found at anotherwhitesuburbanite.com.